Hey friends, you're listening to the Hope and Heart Builds podcast where we're talking all things resilience and revolution. I'm your host, Andre Henry. Trish is not with us today. She is on her way to do a show in Joshua Tree. So she'll be back with us next week. I know you all miss her voice. Um, again, want to thank all of you who make the show possible, all our patrons on Patreon. If you want to become a patron and be, become a part of making this public education available, uh, that will be in the show notes and you can become a patron. Today we have a very special guest. Uh, Dahlia Kinsey is with us today. Uh, Dahlia is a an expert dietitian on a mission. So if you're frustrated with a one-size-fits-all approach to health, diet, and wellness, Dahlia understands and is uniquely qualified to help you take back control of your life. Dahlia, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Okay. Okay. I want to get into this. You are a dietitian on a mission. Could you talk about what that mission is. It's so interesting looking at your website and all the the threads that you're pulling together, the dots that you're connecting that I don't think a lot of people are. So could you tell us what is this mission that you're on? Well, I, since people may not be able to see me, I yeah. am a black dietitian. Only mm-hmm. about 3% of all dietitians in the United States are black. And of course, black people aren't a monolithic group. So Mm -hmm. how many of us are black American? Who knows? Mm -hmm, (laughs) They mm -hmm. don't really have enough numbers to work with to get into the nitty gritty like that. My lived experience as a black person in the United States has really influenced what type of dietitian I have become. But it took Mm -hmm. a while to get here because the initial training, of course, like most things in the U.S., was very focused on just the health, the well-being, the historical context of mm. white Americans. Mm-hmm. And anytime there was discussion about health disparities and why black folks and other marginalized folks are dying so much more quickly than their white peers, the assumption was always that it was the fault of the consumer. Mm. And typically the messaging underneath that was people who don't assimilate enough, who don't become white European enough suffer poor health outcomes. Oh, wow. And you know, in your gut, when you hear stuff like that in the classroom, you know, you know, this doesn't sound right. Mm -hmm. But when you don't hear anyone else contradicting it, you Mm -hmm. start to think maybe you're missing something. Yeah. But in reality, after years of learning to trust my gut more and then looking for research, that deviated from what I was given in the classroom. That's really what's brought me to where I am now. And my goal is to help reduce, if not eliminate health disparities by encouraging marginalized people to understand how historical context affects our health, how racism Mm. is a stressor, how dealing with xenophobia is a stressor. Anytime you're in an environment where people make you feel like you don't belong and you're not safe, that's a source of chronic stress. And usually all we hear is that our health outcomes are our fault because we're doing something wrong. We're rarely told that the environment is taking a toll on us, that it isn't taking on other people. Mm. And that what we actually need is to give ourselves more soothing ways of taking care of ourselves instead of trying to like beat the body into submission, be a certain size. What Mm. we really need, generally speaking, is marginalized folks is things that help with stress, things that give us joy, things that bring us into the present moment. We don't need to 
we don't really need any tough love. <laughs> like we're getting enough toughness. That is right. not what we need. Right. So that makes that I feel like that already clarifies the title of your book, like what that's about, decolonizing wellness. Is that right? Could you talk about that? Song? Yes. Yes. I initially it's funny, the title was more focused on food. It almost sounded like a cookbook, the title that I had given <laughs> it. I wanted to make the kitchen drama free, essentially. Okay. But the book focuses on body-led eating as a way to bring yourself into the present moment, as a way mm-hmm. to connect with your trust and learning that your body is always telling you things, whether it's telling you this job is not the right place for you yeah. or this is not the right person for you. When you're being told you're full, you're satisfied, you still need something sweet. We've been taught mm-hmm. to disconnect from everything our body tells us. So it's very common for people to have a difficult relationship with food. But I yeah. recommend starting with food to rebuild that connection to yourself because it's something we do several times a day, almost every day. Yeah. It's an excellent entry point, even though it feels really challenging for a lot of people. So the book really is about learning why we might have problems accepting what our intuition has to tell us. If we've been raised in a body that's rejected by the culture we're born into, then we've been told we are wrong in so many different ways since birth. Yes. And that serves as a barrier to connecting to the body, connecting to your appetite And it causes other problems as well. But in the book, I also try to look at the historical context of wellness and how being attached to the idea of thinness and thinking thin equals superior or thin equals health, how that goes back to the transatlantic slave trade and how white supremacy is influencing how we relate to wellness even now in 2023. Well, so the, the conversation about food Sounds like it's a doorway into a much larger conversation about bodies and our relationships to our bodies. Absolutely. And it feels like it's a loop because I think you need both ends of the conversation Mm -hmm. to be able to give yourself more grace if you're someone who has ever had trouble accepting your body. That could be any part of your body, whether it's your natural hair texture or maybe how able-bodied you are, understanding Mm. that you didn't make that up, you didn't invent that. And when Mm. people are out here telling you that you should just know who you are and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you shouldn't care what other people think, that's not realistic. We weren't just Mm. introduced to these negative thoughts about ourselves. Right. These were introduced to us when we were children. Mm -hmm. And it isn't a personal failing to believe negative things about yourself because they were introduced to you at a young age. All humans are pretty much wide open when they're young. And if someone tells you something, you just believe it at a certain age. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to hear what you think about this, because what it's bringing up for me when you say this is, I feel like people talk about exactly what you're saying, like these poor body image, the low self-esteem, mental health struggles, all these things, as though, first off, they're just individual problems. Mm. They're rare, you know, and as though these issues come out of nowhere, right? We're not talking about exactly what you said. We're existing in a context that results in these kinds of health conditions, 
um, mental health conditions, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so it's, it's even hard for me. Like I'm trying to hold these things together as you're saying it. I'm like, this makes sense. This resonates as true, but all of the, you know, living 38 years where people do bootstrap you, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, makes it hard to hold these things together. So is that what you're doing? Because I know that you offer consultations and all those kinds of things. Is that what you're doing with organizations and with your individual clients? Yes, usually what I'm trying to help people with in those types of settings, because it may be one hour that I have with them yes. and most of them, I won't see them again. Mm-hmm. I try to introduce the concept of the body being trustworthy mm-hmm. and the best source of information that we have for how to take care of ourselves. Wow. And that feels like a big concept for most people because you're always being told you can't trust your body. Mm-hmm. You can't trust it around cookies. You can't mm-hmm. trust it around, you know, anyone you're attracted to. Like the, mm-hmm. there's this overwhelmingly consistent message in North America anyway, that Mm. the body's shady. (laughs) It's always up to no good. And that the body wants pleasure. Pleasure is bad. Like you can hear it in the moralizing of food when Uh people talk about things being sinfully delicious or uh, people even feeling like they have to hide when they're really enjoying their food, especially if you get to a certain size. If you're very thin and you enjoy your food in public, Typically, no one's going to say anything or they may be commending you like, wow, you're so thin and you eat. Good for you. (laughs) But if you get to a certain size and you eat anything in public, people act like, how Mm. dare you give yourself satisfaction or how dare you try to be sated beyond a certain Mm -hmm. size? Mm -hmm. It's really twisted how consistent the messaging is that only some bodies are acceptable. And when you think about it, you know what that body is. It's Mm able-bodied. It's at least Mm middle-class. It's small. Mm -hmm. It has markers of status. So no Mm -hmm. split ends, no, Mm -hmm. you know, signs of poverty Mm -hmm. and it's white. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is the idealized body here. I think that was in there somewhere. <laughs> it's like the farther you get away from that, the more pushback you get in public settings, whether that's mm-hmm. people are less likely to give you grace if you need help, or people are less likely to listen to you if you get frustrated and you raise your voice. There's so yes. much attached to that. And you're wow. aware of this all the time. It's in the back of your head. Yeah. And so it makes you feel like sometimes you're trying to make sure your body is acceptable as it could possibly be. And there's some things about it you just cannot change. Yeah. And it's almost like you're apologizing for existing or taking up space. Mm. But usually we've been doing this for so long. You're not aware of it anymore. Mm -hmm. What's been really interesting to me is how many people who have fairly socially acceptable bodies in the U.S. still also have this huge disconnect. Because honestly, of a lot of the things that are rooted in the same thing, like there's only one good way to be a human being and we all have to strive. Yes. It's really upsetting to think that when you're born, you generally speaking, you don't even think about your body. It's just the thing you live in and explore the world with and you're fascinated by it. Yeah. But for almost all of us to go from that to spending the majority of our time worrying about whether or not our body is acceptable 
is really upsetting. I don't think that's what any of us are here to do or, yeah. or focus on. Yeah. So where do we, where do you start, you know, with, with that, with the work that you're talking about, um, where do you begin to unlearn these things and how? The biggest shift that I found helpful for the most people because everyone's an individual. So this may mm-hmm. feel like it takes longer for some people than others, but yeah. it's just slowing down using mm-hmm. eating as an entry point, mm-hmm. knowing that th- some of the things we're talking about are big concepts or new concepts. And there's no way it's going to sink in in one day, knowing that there's something you can physically do three times a day or more mm-hmm. to help kind of push back against that programming, just focus on the eating trying to let go of the rules you have around it, but just slowing down a little bit, even if it's just for two minutes, maybe one day it'll just be one minute that you check in with yourself and try to see where is hunger in my body? What is my body telling me right now? Sometimes Mm -hmm. when you sit with that, you might realize you're exhausted. You might realize you're really excited about the food that you're about to eat and it's what you need. You might notice that you actually hate what you have in front of you and you've Mm. chosen it because of some outside reason, whether that's not enough time or because you think your body is a size that you didn't deserve the dish you really wanted. Just pausing and starting to question, why do I think that is that thought mine? Where did it come from? Mm. And also being okay with the fact that sometimes nothing's going to come to you. The practice is just trying to create that little gap between when we eat for whatever reason we're being called to eat and what our body's really asking for and how we're really feeling. Yeah. I know that this is personal for you. Like this is a part of your personal story. And I wondered if you might talk about that journey personally of you. Yeah. How'd you get here personally to this becoming your work? Yeah. When I was a little kid, my grandma was not from the United States. Uh, I'm ha- Well, my mother is half Jamaican, mm-hmm. half Afro-Cuban. Mm-hmm. And the Afro-Cuban grandmother is the one who always raised us with the impression that plants can do amazing things. Mm-hmm. And the body usually just needs time to heal, that it's always fixing itself. And so I always Mm. have in the back of my head that the body doesn't need a lot of meddling with. You should let it do what it wants to do. Yeah. That combined with, you know, the education I talked about, there's a pushback there. But what Mm. brought it together for me was being personally chronically ill and Mm -hmm. it taking years for me to get diagnosed. Yeah. And constantly going to the doctor, being told the same thing that was obviously based on bias, whether it was how I was gaining weight. People Mm -hmm. assuming that that means I don't understand anything about food. I'm a glutton. I might be a little dumb. Mm -hmm. You know, these were the assumptions you have to deal with. Like the bigger you get as you go into healthcare settings. Oh my gosh. Um, No one believing I was ill when I couldn't stop losing weight because Mm -hmm. people associate thinness with wellness Um, Mm. people insisting that my symptoms sometimes were either imagined or that I maybe just wanted pain medication or something, having to 
get through all of that bias, whether it's about size or their perception of people who look like my gender present this way, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or whether it's dealing with assumptions about black people having um, weak self-control mm-hmm. or uh, mm-hmm. inability to understand, you know, medical things. All of that slowed down me getting diagnosed with Graves' disease, and it is potentially fatal if left untreated. Wow. And my health had to get so, so, so bad for me to finally find someone who could diagnose me properly, seeing through whatever other biases might have been in the way. Mm-hmm. And when they did, and I went home and Googled, oh, what is Graves' disease? Like, what is this? Mm-hmm. I had 15 out of these 16 symptoms that appeared on oh the first gosh. page of Google. So I say that was a whole lot of bias <laughs> that was wow. stopping people from being able to diagnose something that should have been more recognizable. And mm-hmm. their bias almost killed me. Mm. And then seeing again, as someone becoming a healthcare provider, how people were not only not being encouraged to challenge their bias and how that could affect patients. It was being taught. They're being taught that when you see this type of client, they're lying to you about what they're eating and they have Mm. poor self-control or they have poor access to resources, not encouraging people to actually talk to the patient in front of them like Mm -hmm. they're an individual. Yeah. But the assumption was, okay, if we're not talking about minorities, which is the term they were using in school, then Mm -hmm. of course, everybody's an individual. But the minute they talk about minority health, then they just want to give the students a list of stereotypes and assumptions to memorize. Then then it's a block of people. Mm -hmm. Wow. Now, I know that the summer of 2020 or late spring of 2020 changed all of our lives. And I know that that factors into your work, too. So I wonder if you could tell us about how how watching, you know, George Floyd's execution and the uprising in response to that, um, how did that shape your work and your story? Yeah, the racial reckoning that wasn't is what <laughs> they calling it lately. Because it feels like even though massive things shifted in my emotional life and in a lot of the people around me, the political situation and the basic ask that we had, like stop killing us with impunity in the streets, still not resolved. Yeah. But what witnessing his murder did for me, what it felt like it freed me to Mm -hmm. understand all the ways in which I was holding back who I am, how I communicate and my actual opinions about how racism is affecting people and other forms of oppression, like homophobia and transphobia are affecting people. I realized that there's nothing you can do. Mm -hmm. There's nothing you can change in your own behavior to make yourself safe from bigoted and ignorant people. Right. And I don't think I ever understood it before. Because Mm. as he's being murdered, you see how afraid he is. Anyone could read that. You Mm -hmm. see like how childlike he was right before his death, how innocent he was. Mm -hmm. There was nothing more he could have done to convince these people of his humanity and of his right to live. Mm-hmm. And I felt like only the silence that the early stages of the pandemic induced 
allowed me enough space to really take that in because it's devastating. Yeah. I realized like looking back, of course, that my parents didn't want to believe it because it's too heartbreaking. I didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to believe that there was nothing I could do to keep myself safe as a black person. So even yeah. though I feel like I've always had a sense of strong like pan-African pride, mm-hmm. part of me was constantly code switching and mm-hmm. constantly holding back uh, for fear of retaliation. And not yeah. just because I'd read about retaliation, because I lived it. Almost yeah. everyone has. Mm-hmm. When you make a simple comment in a classroom in elementary school based on your ability to reason and foolishness in a textbook, let's say about a group of people you belong to, and mm-hmm. you think you're just participating in class and you get yelled at or you get detention, you're talking back, you're being smart when you literally are just saying the math is not mathing, right? <laughs> like yes, you're telling yes. me this issue has been resolved, but I see it's not true or this feels like revisionist history. I, like I know a Holocaust survivor and that's not what they said. You know, mm-hmm. just knowing that challenging power throughout your life as a child has been met with, you know, violence or extreme anger Mm -hmm. can really carry over. And I didn't realize how afraid I was of my peers in the field retaliating, Mm -hmm. uh, being called a liar, being told like, that's not how it was or having job opportunities evaporate. I didn't realize how fearful I was. And I didn't know how afraid I was to write this book that I've wanted to write probably for a couple of decades. Yeah. And knowing that I really thought when I started writing the book that, oh, maybe someone will kill me Mm. because they don't like my opinion. Yes. And realizing that the fear was that deep. But only after watching George Floyd be murdered did I realize I was finally at that point where fear of death was not enough. Mm -hmm. to stop me from being myself anymore yeah yeah well that's that is super deep and i relate i remember uh something i used to say after i after my book was published like look at that i did it and i i didn't die i'm still here you know yeah and so what has it been like now that your book is out in the world your words are out there in the world um what is that like for you right now it's been surreal, honestly, because you know how it is. It depends on where you are when you have mm-hmm. any kind of opinion, how it will be received. And yes. I was told for a lifetime that nobody wanted to hear what I had to say, mm-hmm. whether some of that was like just being socialized female and in the South, mm-hmm. um, some other like super religious stuff, that messaging again and again of Your voice doesn't need to be heard. Nobody wants to hear what you have to say. Mm. And then also nobody wants to hear about racial inequality. Nobody wants to hear about homophobia. That Mm. was the messaging I got my entire childhood and throughout my most of my 30s. Yeah. So I'm still shocked when people say, not only did I want to hear this, I needed to hear this. Yeah. And it comes together that feeling, you know, when you have a creative mission, you don't Mm. know for sure whether it's your mission or like an assigned mission. And it did feel bigger. And that has been the most helpful thing for when I'm worried about like, maybe I'm not getting the traction that I want to get, or Mm. uh, maybe I made a mistake in the book. Just remembering that this is a calling and 
it may look many different ways while I'm in the process of trying to answer this call to help other people understand that there's actually nothing wrong with you. And what if all of your malaise is coming from being told that you're unacceptable so many times that you had no choice but to believe it? It's it's just strange to know how powerful it can be to find your audience and to understand that you don't have to focus on the people who keep telling you to shut up or keep telling you like you're not worthy, you're not acceptable, your opinion doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And learning to focus on who is waiting for you and who does need you. Yeah. There's been a lot of growth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Um I want to ask you. What keeps you going in this work? What makes you, you know, continue to wake up in the morning and say, okay, I'm going to keep working at this? I get really inspired sometimes thinking about other works that I have read that I know changed my life and other forms of art or expression, just anything that somebody took the time to make Mm -hmm. that I feel changed my life, like during a dark time or just taught me valuable lessons as a child. And that lights me up so much to know that, you know, some adult somewhere I'm never going to meet wrote kids books that changed my worldview. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and knowing that I could do that for even one person and that I don't ever have to know about it mm-hmm. because I have no way to communicate to these folks. Well, now that I think about it, I probably do actually <laughs> People forget to say yeah, yeah. <laughs> when they're changed by something, you mm-hmm. usually don't know how an interaction right. with someone is going to impact them. Mm-hmm. So I just remember that, that even though it feels like things aren't changing, things are shifting because yes. there are things that we were explaining to people in 1999 Mm-hmm. That people didn't believe until they saw George Floyd be murdered. Right. We all knew that was possible. We right. all knew that was happening before we saw it. Mm-hmm. We just hadn't seen it on that scale before. Yes. Yes. So knowing that change may happen after you die mm-hmm. and that that's okay too. It's just as impactful. Yeah. Stop um, obsessing <laughs> over trying to measure your impact and just live. I mean, that, that's a breakthrough in itself. Yeah. Well, Dahlia, it's been such a pleasure uh, hearing about your work, talking to you about your work. Um, I, I want people to know uh, that you also have a shorter guide that they can get started on, on your website. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Thank you for reminding me. So anyone who feels like they can't really understand when they're hungry or they feel out of control around food and they want to understand their appetite better. I have a little beat the binge quick guide on my website that's for free. And it also comes with a little guided meditation, which I really love just encouraging Mm -hmm. you to slow down and up that self-compassion. And anyone who wants to start thinking about connecting to their body and how maybe being a marginalized person has impacted their well-being should also check out the YouTube channel. And it's just my name, Dahlia Kinsey, Mm -hmm. to start exploring that with me. 
Great. Well, again, it's been great having you, Dahlia. Thanks so much for your time, your generosity with your story. Thanks for sharing your work with us. And thank you all for listening once again to the Hope and Heart Built podcast. You will hear from us next week. We're going to turn it over to Ross and he'll tell you more about how to keep in touch with us, how to follow us, all that kind of stuff. All right. Y'all take care. Thanks for choosing to listen today. You can catch up with our hosts online. Trish's is at Trish's Music, that's spelled T-R-I-S-H-E-S, Music, on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Andre is at the Andre Henry on Instagram and TikTok, and at Andre Henry on Twitter. Catch the songs you heard today and more of their music on Spotify. If you'd like to support what we're doing here and see the video of Andre and Trish's conversation, you can join the Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Andre Henry. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.